0: Yale Podcast Network. Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at people making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. Normally, our episodes feature individuals who've come to campus as speakers and guests of our program. With the podcast becoming more regular, we've all thought, what other stories and ideas can we tell? Ones that draw from our local communities, complicate popular trends, or weave together new disciplines? Podcast manager Ashia Johnny presents the first of these episodes, which will be a format we use from time to time. Listen on as Ashia uplifts the work of Black owned businesses in New Haven.
1: Black restaurants have been the pinnacle of Black community building for centuries. Recipes have cultural and familial significance, and for the Black diaspora, they are an important piece of cultural preservation. The diaspora is vast and varied and the recipes, foods, and ways of preparation are just as vast and varied. In New Haven, a city with a population that is nearly 43% Black, food has been a way to bring people together. New Haven is a city rich with Black history. Edward Boucher was the first Black person to earn a PhD in the United States, Black labor helped build this city, and New Haven is home to some of the most diverse and interesting Black-owned businesses and restaurants to this day. Today, I hope to explore a couple of the restaurants slash businesses that are fostering community, preserving familiar recipes, and making names for themselves as New Haven staples. I had the immense pleasure of speaking with Alicia Hazel, one of the co-owners of Ninth Square Market 2 Caribbean Style, a vegan Caribbean restaurant on George Street, and Elisa Bowens Mercado, owner of House of Salsa and Rhythm Brewing Company on Whaley and Barnett Street, respectively. Both women have shared with me their narratives the trials and tribulations of owning a business, and how familiar memory is preserved through community and food. In an era that is fascinated by organic and sustainable food, sometimes it is difficult to tease out the history and the cultural nuance behind the sustainable food movement. While there may be different definitions of sustainable and organic, sustainable, meaning healthy food, has always been on the forefront of Ninth Square Market's mind. Take a listen to Alicia Hazel's perspective. Hi, Alicia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's so great having you here. Um, I'm a huge fan of Ninth Square. It's an amazing restaurant. You have amazing food. I was wondering if you could give us a little background on Ninth Square uh, and how the restaurant came to be.
2: The restaurant basically, you know, was it was a vision. You know, it's been in the making long before we even opened. So it's simply out of our love for cooking, Mm -hmm. you know, our love for eating, Most and foremost, I love eating good food, healthy food, because we understand, you know, the importance of eating healthy food and what healthy food is, which we refer to as ITAL or the plant-based living, which is known as vegan now. So, you know, we cook a lot naturally and, you know, we love to eat. And we notice that if we don't cook at home, because, you know, our family is vegan, vegetarian, We have to travel to other places to get food. So a lot of times we were going to New York, they do have a wide range of vegan or ITEL food, you know, black owned businesses in New York that we would have to venture out to when we want to go out to eat. So in doing that, we saw that, you know, we cook pretty similar dishes and we saw that that's something that is missing in New Haven. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no food that represents our ITAL way of living, which is plant-based vegan lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So we decided that we can open up a restaurant to help share that. We're always cooking for family and friends when there's events because, you know, we're not eating certain foods. So we always bring our own dish. Everybody raves about the dish, how good it is. So we try to show them like, look, there's no meat in there. It still tastes good for you. How you know good it is for your health, how much better it is for the environment. Um, so we realized that, you know, something like this can thrive because we've seen it done elsewhere and people seem to enjoy the food. So why not give it a shot? So mm-hmm. pretty much how it started. it. Very cool.
1: You mentioned a little bit earlier this sort of plant based eating, this plant based living. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the connection between veganism and Jamaican and um, wider Caribbean food.
2: OK, so. Yeah, I mentioned ITAL. ITAL basically comes from like vital, Mm -hmm. meaning, you know, eating only foods that are vital to your health that are going to, you know, enhance your well-being. Not eating dead, consuming flesh, Mm -hmm. things like that. So in the Caribbean, not only in Jamaica, there's a wide range of people who follow that type of lifestyle, but it's just not widely known. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people know of the meat-based dishes and they are not realizing that there's a whole community. You know, you have the Rasta community who are more familiar with that way of eating. So that basically is the vegan lifestyle there. So there is a whole community of these plant-based, I tell, if you want to call it, eaters in the Caribbean, not just in Jamaica. So it's nice now to see that people are getting more of the taste of that and becoming more aware of that. Mm -hmm.
1: I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about Since veganism is oftentimes seen as a privileged way of living or um, something that is not afforded to people of color, people from marginalized backgrounds, how do you see veganism being afforded to people of color right now in this kind of like day and age?
2: So I think people are becoming more aware Mm -hmm. and more aware of their choices. Yeah. Like you said previously people weren't really given the choice. Yeah, In certain neighborhoods, you're limited to what you have access to as far as food, Mm -hmm. especially if you're not of a certain income or if you, you know, you may not have a car. Mm -hmm. You may not be able to get to the freshest market. You may have to rely on the corner store. You may have to rely on canned versus fresh. So I think just now more people are becoming aware and that knowledge is helping them seek out healthier options. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of our main points in the restaurant was to make it affordable, because that is one of the barriers that prevents people from getting access, you know, to the healthier food. Mm -hmm. And those people tend to be those people, you know, who have, are on the lower end Mm -hmm. of the economic, you know, scale. Yeah. Have you noticed trends in like your customer base?
1: um, Or have you noticed people like shifting like their eating styles after coming to Nine Square?
2: we were so shocked you know when we opened the restaurant because initially we were going to have it in a different location but it didn't work out and i guess it's for a reason so we were actually having it in the fair haven neighborhood mm-hmm. because we wanted to be more accessible to you know our community we wanted our people to have that option right around right in their neighborhood we ended up downtown in ninth square And we weren't really sure what kind of customers we were going to bring in but we see a multitude of people you know there's every race you could imagine walking through those doors we have people of who you know on the low pay scale people are on the high pay scale it's nice to see that everybody can come to one spot and be able to eat good healthy food together and i think not only for us is that you know make us more aware but for people themselves, you know, within the restaurant, we see people form relations that they may have not formed before because they're not in the same environment as certain people, mm-hmm. you know. Usually, so since you were just kind of
1: like talking a little bit about wanting to have um, a place that is like kind of like a community hub and not being able to have that in Fairhaven um, versus New Haven, or you know, having to kind of like come to New Haven rather than be in Fairhaven, I was wondering if. You could just like talk a little bit about the neighborhood that y'all are in, because I know that some concerns about opening vegan restaurants is that they may contribute to certain waves of gentrification. And I was wondering, because New Haven is such an interesting city, socioeconomic wise, you have Yale, you have Gateway Community College, you have like the wider population. Um, Have you noticed any sort of changes in the area since Nine Square opening or even like kind of beyond that? um, How long have y'all have been here? um, If there have been sort of any shifts? in the surrounding community?
2: Well, I'm from New Haven, Mm -hmm. so I was born and raised here. Um, And there's a big difference of how downtown looked, Mm -hmm. you know, back then. I'm not going to say how long back then (laughs) that was, but um, I noticed there are a lot more restaurants Mm -hmm. and a lot more restaurants that are bringing more ethnic food, you know, out. Mm -hmm. Since we've opened up downtown, I have noticed more of a vegan trend around downtown. Mm -hmm. So other places are starting to offer the options because they're seeing that that is something that's growing within the community. I'm sorry, what was the other part of the question yes. <laughs> No problem.
1: Um, just like thinking about changes in the area and then I guess like what your take on that whole idea that um, bringing in like healthier restaurants or more vegan restaurants um, contributes
2: to waves of gentrification. So If anything, I I believe if you keep the restaurants affordable, that Mm -hmm. it would it would help the people, Mm -hmm. you know, within the community be able to stay in the community. You know, in some sense, we have to rebuild, but we have to rebuild in a way that's going to benefit ourselves. And, you know, we hope to see more people open up businesses, you know, more people of color open up businesses within their communities Mm -hmm. to to help that, to help themselves rebuild and not be pushed out and be able to thrive for themselves. So, And that's something we notice also. There's a lot more people of the diaspora starting to realize that they can open up businesses. And Mm -hmm. I think of seeing each other do it, we start to realize that we can do it. And it's helping the community, I think, grow and thrive more. It's just something that we see in talking to our customers. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So my uncle owns a dance company in Georgia, and that has been open for 25 years, which is a really like awesome feat, um, especially for black businesses, all of the kind of like hurdles um, that black businesses have to go through. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you have faced, either opening or kind of like maintaining momentum um, and
2: some of the things that you're kind of dealing with right now. So there's there's many challenges. First of all, you know, opening a business in itself is a challenge. You have to have a plan. You know, you have to have money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that was, you know, obviously those two things and the money is more of the challenge. So I think I mentioned a little earlier it was, you know, we were working on this business like three years before opening it. Mm -hmm. You know, just planning it out, seeking out funding, going through all the, you know, trying to find out what permits you need and so forth. And so many things worked out and didn't work out. And then we ended up um, actually deciding not to do it. And then eventually we ended up where we are now just by happenstance, if you Mm -hmm. want to call it so. But a lot of the challenges, I would say, are making sure you can continue to run your business. You know, when things slow down, how are you going to keep things going? you know when you get discouraged how are you going to keep things going mm-hmm. how are you going to keep yourself going when you're tired and but you got to stay motivated you remember why you're doing this in the first place and you just have to stick with it and that's mm-hmm. you know advice i would give to anybody opening any type of business um plan it out you know look for funding because mm-hmm. that is important and just you know stay motivated and stick with it okay i know that your
1: restaurant is a family inspired establishment And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how that plays out in your recipes, how you approach customers, what people contribute, those kind of things.
2: So a lot of the recipes, you know, the way the menu was formed was a lot of things we like to eat, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of things we grew up eating, flavors we grew up eating, flavors of the Caribbean are like the jerk, the brown stew, the curry. We just kind of veganized things, you Mm -hmm. know, amongst our household and started making these things. And Q, who cooks, he's a chef, (laughs) he's very talented at bringing out the flavor and enhancing things. And he thinks about his childhood, you know, sometimes some recipes that he's had way back home. And then he'll remember and bring it back out. For example, he did a vegan version of Rundown recently as a special, which is basically like a fresh coconut. You take it and you grate it and you produce the milk from it and you boil that down to create a nice custard and you cook down your vegetables in it. So like, we bring out those things that we remember eating as children and coming to this country, finding mac and cheese, you know, that's something that, you know, it's not really typical Caribbean cuisine, but a lot of Caribbean Americans, you know, end up, you know, eating mac and cheese, you know, things like fried chicken. So we did like the fried drumsticks. My mom makes sorrel traditionally, which is a hibiscus drink, Mm -hmm. you know, every Christmas, you know, so, that's something that we sell in the restaurant. And, you know, I've learned from making it with her. Other family members contribute as far as, you know, the gingerbread recipes or things like the rock cakes that we sell. So, it's really a combination of everything that we kind of just grew up eating, flavors that we like. Our family's given us ideas like, oh, why don't you do this? So, you know, I think people would like this. So, you know, throw that in there. So, it does help to keep things going, make things interesting. Mm hmm.
1: I was wondering um, where do you source kind of like your produce from? Um, Is there like nearby markets or like how
2: does that kind of like process work for your restaurant? So we are actually quite lucky because I have my family as a farm that's very close by. It's like actually in West Haven. So throughout half of the year, we are able to get a lot of fresh, local, organic produce through them, like our peppers, eggplants, tomatoes, you know, get kalaloo, which we like to wait until it's nice and fresh um, versus buying it, you know, in the can, which is commonly used. And then other than that, we do shop at markets. We shop around a bit. We like to um, buy things, obviously, non-GMO, organic when possible. We do use various markets around New Haven. We try to keep our products very pure and, you know, keep the quality in it because we believe in healthy, pure eating. Mm -hmm. I was
1: wondering, I think you spoke a little bit about just like kind of like the historical roots of plant-based eating, particularly in the Caribbean. But I'm wondering, um, and maybe this is as much a question for me as it is for the podcast, Um, I'm vegetarian um, and that's kind of an anomaly in my family. Um, and I was wondering what you would say to elders in the community who are reticent to exchange some unhealthy, um, but albeit culturally important recipes and foods for more healthy ones. So you mentioned kind of like the mac and cheese one. And now yeah. you have this vegan mac and cheese that is delicious, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, and how, just like, what would you say to elders in our in our community?
2: I would say, you know, just give it a try. Mm-hmm. Be open, kind of understand why You know, it is kind of vital for your health to make certain changes, vital for our environment to make certain changes just for us to thrive, you know, as a people. I think that once people realize the food tastes good and Mm -hmm. it is actually food, then, you know, they kind of overcome the whole, oh my God, it's vegan, it's plant-based because, you know, honestly, sometimes if you don't even tell them it's vegan and they eat it, they, you know, as long as it tastes good, they're Mm -hmm. like, okay, like I can do this, so... It's funny because, just like you said, being vegetarian is like an anomaly in your family. And it was for us as well. Q's been um, vegan, vegetarian for like over 20 years or so. And me, about 10 years. And it wasn't common in our family. You know, there's a few people amongst Mm -hmm. our family, but not many. But now, since we've shared a lot of our food with them, and even since we've opened the restaurant... My dad's vegetarian. His mom's a vegetarian. All of our family eats more plant-based more regularly, and it's, I think it's just because they know it's healthy and it tastes good, and they still get the same flavors as their traditional flavors. Mm-hmm. So I would just say to those, you know, give it a try. Open your mind. Try to understand why it's it's a good thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's not <laughs> a bad thing. <laughs> we eat from the earth. You know, it's beneficial for us versus having to put not living substances in our body, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean, so.
1: Yeah. One thing that you said there, just kind of like thinking about the connection between personal health and health for the earth, I was wondering how sort of framing vegetarianism or plant-based eating in this way, how can this sort of reshape our current ideas of sustainability as a mostly white elitist form of environmentalism or even just healthy eating, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, we just need to share it more, you know, amongst ourselves, because I believe the more people know the knowledge is really what helps spread it around. Unfortunately, some of us haven't been able to gain that knowledge in certain ways, whether it's due to your economic status or your education, being not aware of what environmentalism is, you know, and protecting your environment. I see people throw trash out of their cars, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes, and it's like, why can't you just hold that and throw it in the trash can? And I'm like, maybe they just don't know better. Mm -hmm. And if they wouldn't know that that, you know, is going to sit there forever, then maybe they wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So it could be just the knowledge that we need to bring to people to be more aware of their environment and what it means to be more aware of their environment and being more aware of their health and what it means. But... I feel like the vegan trend, if you want to call it, like as it's growing, Mm -hmm. is actually helping people become more aware. It may start with just looking at their health, but I think eventually they start to realize like it's not just about themselves, that it should be spread to other living beings, the planet, Mm -hmm. what sustainability really could do for us. So, yeah. Yeah, it's just like taking steps. So, Mm -hmm. do you think that?
1: I mean, I think that food fosters community. <laughs> How do you think that your restaurant has like been a community space for people? Do you think that your restaurant has like been able to build community in that way?
2: Definitely. Like I said, I see people of all orientation races come together and mm-hmm. they're sitting in one spot, and you know, they may not do those things naturally. But mm-hmm. like you said, it's the food. Mm-hmm. in your household, food brings people together. You all sit in the kitchen and, you know, congregate and talk about your day. So people end up congregating, sitting at a table with somebody they may not know and talking, sharing about their business or sharing about other things that are going on. People talk with us about what's going on. Mm -hmm. So it it does help build the community. And I do think it's helping others to just be more human, humane to others, which is Mm -hmm. goes hand in hand. Right. Yeah.
1: Final question, Um, wanted to thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with me. I feel like I learned a lot and definitely um, loved hearing your perspective on just kind of like the connections between food and community and veganism and culture. I usually like to end with asking our guests a question about what is like a misconception um, either about sustainability um, or about, in um, your case, veganism um, that
2: you would like love if this misconception did not exist. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's the whole, like, with the veganism thing, people are like, oh, I need meat. Like, I got to eat meat. Food doesn't <laughs> taste good if I don't have meat. So if that's the biggest min- misconception. That along with, like, they think people who are vegan just eat grass all day. Like, <laughs> that's what people used to ask me. Like, what do you eat if you don't eat, you know, you eat grass? I'm like, it's like... I want people to see that this is food. This is what we should be eating. Like mm-hmm. I said, eating from the earth, protecting the earth because we need to eat from it. So if that can be like understood, you know, I think that can definitely help, you know, mm-hmm. help out. So the biggest misconception is vegan food does not taste good. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of uh, restaurants out there now and it's nice to see a lot more vegan restaurants come out and they're doing a really good job of creating delicious food, so Mm -hmm. just hope to see it continue, because like you said, food keeps, builds the community, keeps people together.
1: After speaking with Alicia, I was interested in thinking about the different ways black entrepreneurs are breaking into new fields. Beer brewing has largely been viewed as a white male-dominated industry, although historically women were the ones who were doing the brewing. Elisa Bowens Mercado joined me to talk about her experience not only as the first black female beer brewer in Connecticut, known lovingly as Lady Lager, but as a person intent on community building, cultural preservation, and honoring family memory. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so
3: much for having me.
1: Very excited to be here. It's so wonderful um, to talk to you just about being a Black woman um, in the beer brewing industry, um, being a Black business owner. Um, And so I was wondering, just kind of um, before we delve into the beer brewing stuff, if you could just talk a little bit about your
3: background, what brought you to New Haven, um, what led you to open up House of Salsa. Oh, absolutely. So I'm from Connecticut. So born and raised here, went to college in Boston at Northeastern. But I've always had, you know, deep roots here, especially in New Haven, because now both businesses are owned and operated out of this wonderful city. I'm just excited that Connecticut has been an incredible home for me. And what happened was about 20 years ago, the House of Salsa opened up here, right here on Chapel Street. And so with my ties to New Haven, with my ties to the dance community, I was actually able to... um, in 2000, was able to open up the House of Salsa. My previous life before the whole Salsa, I was a uh, general contractor. So I would go to Puerto Rico all the time to speak to women um, and minorities uh, in the construction industry because it was a white male-dominated field and people wanted to know, women especially, uh, and then people of color want to know, well, how do you knock down doors in the industry? So um, on a visit, business uh, visit one year, I was in San Juan and I said, oh, my gosh, it was just like the people were dancing. It was beautiful and came home, took a couple of uh, salsa lessons, and then uh, subsequently ended up opening up the House of Salsa um, 19 years ago, right wow. here in New Haven. So, so it has have been kind of like a staple, people say, in the community for folks that can, you know, dance and want to just go out and have a good time. But more importantly, it really became a place where people of all ages, races, you name it, were able to come and feel comfortable in a place where they were able to just basically get some workout time, but in a fun manner by dancing. Yeah. So that's how the House of Salsa um, kind of came to.
1: Um, And are you still involved in House of Salsa?
3: Oh, yes. Let me tell you something. House of Salsa is still very alive and well. Mm -hmm. We have classes six days a week. Again, we were downtown on Chapel Street for about 15 years, but I just recently moved well, about three years ago to Whaley Avenue in the Westville section. So shout out to uh, Westville. um, Very art-driven space in that area. So we do offer salsa classes um, six days a week. So people are still dancing. So got to get those people out there yeah. dancing and moving. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, the energy is still going.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, because of the movement and because of your own ties to the New Haven community, have you noticed that students are involved like at House of Sasa or is it much more like New Haven,
3: like resident base? You know what? The wonderful thing is we get both. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was downtown, you know, not even a block away from Yale campus, so I'll never forget the School of uh, Forestry, mm-hmm. a group of about maybe 65 students. Wow. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. So the Yale School of Forestry came in. Mm-hmm. They would come in every week. And we I would literally host a, a Latin night for them. So the connection to the university has been amazing. I currently actually teach at Payne Whitney Gym. Mm-hmm. So I do their spring semesters, their fall semester and so we actually have, you know, people right now who are in class, who are students, mm. who are learning the art of Latin dancing. But then, of course, you've got these people that are in the community and they want to have something fun, something different mm-hmm. to do. And so you've got folks that are from all over Connecticut, actually, that come out to the House of Salsa for some professional dance training. Mm-hmm. So it's both. It's a wonderful balance. yeah. Speaking of balance, you have <laughs>
1: House of Salsa and now you have Rhythm Brewing Company. Yes. Um, how did Rhythm
3: Brewing Company emerge and how how is balancing that? Balancing, and I will let me tell you, it's a balance, but it's a wonderful balance. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason why I named the company Rhythm is because I needed to tie my mm-hmm. dancing in with my new passion. So I've got my passion of dancing and now I've got my passion of brewing. It's all has come in together, and people are now finding their rhythm, we say, Mm -hmm. you know, when we were branding the company. But about five years ago, I was in Cape Cod at a craft beer festival, and I was walking around, and there were people having tastings, and I was tasting beer, and everything was an IPA, and I was just like, you know, I wanted something that tastes like beer, something Mm -hmm. normal. Not saying that IPAs don't Mm -hmm. taste like beer, but um, I have a different palate. Yeah. And so I'm walking around with my husband, and I look around and I'm like, wow, I'm like, there's really not a lot of beers here that I can drink. I'm like, and I looked at him, I said, you know what? I go, I'm going to make my own beer. And I come from a background of female beer drinkers in my Mm -hmm. family. So both of my grandmothers, God rest their souls, I'm paying homage to them. That was the motivation right then and there. I'm going to make something that I can enjoy. And then at the same time, Make my grandmothers proud that I am following kind of in the lineage of beer drinking females in the family. Mm-hmm. So four and a half years of research, brand development, and then we launched about a year ago. So we had our anniversary, yeah, uh, yay, one year. <laughs> you know when a business can make it one year, then mm-hmm. that's when you kind of hit your hurdles, you know, your bumps in the road. But two hundred and twenty locations later, mm-hmm. um we are just really excited about where the company is going and how it is growing. Mm-hmm. You mentioned
1: something that that's just so beautiful and what I've been hearing a lot from, especially um, Black female business owners and Black female restaurateurs, is this kind of idea of family lineage and um, yes. respect and trying to bring those traditions forward. And I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about in your own like life, how important that sort of like family lineage and that family memory is in cultivating food and producing food and making beer.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, coming from an African descent and being African-American, you know, our lineage goes back to farmland, to crops. It goes back to Africa. It goes back to even music, where in Africa, that's where salsa rhythms come from, on um, The drum beats. There weren't like these drums that you can go buy, you know, Mm -hmm. at a drum store right now. People started with percussion. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this goes back generations and generations and generations. So, when I look at how strong the women were in my family, I know that they got stuff from the harvest Mm -hmm. and they would just with their hands, they would pick it and they would have to prepare it. Mm -hmm. So, coming from lineage of women who really just kind of dove into either, like you said, food and beverage. I saw that as a child, kind of like growing up, they liked their good beers. You know, the the men in the family drank more of the spirits, but it was significant to see such strong women in my life that have cultivated just things through what they had gone through. Yeah. That's incredible. So it's just like bringing... That kind of full circle and fast forwarding, another reason why I got into the beer business is because it's a white male dominated field. Mm -hmm. So when you have women breaking down doors in this industry, it's about, yes, people don't really care who's making the beer at the end of the day. Some folks don't care Mm -hmm. as long as it's a good product. Mm -hmm. And so we, we made sure that we created a fantastic product. It's a lager. People love lagers. It's something normal. It's something that five years ago when I was in Cape Cod, I wanted to bring back a normal tasting beer, bring beer back to the basics. But now it's just like we've got to open up doors into these industries that are not diversified Mm -hmm. as of yet. And so that was another motivation And anything that I what I remember about the women or men in my family were saying it was just like, you know what, you might be of color, you might be a female but if you have a vision and if you have passion, drive, anything is possible. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sitting here with you today saying that, you know what, kind of like stepped out leap of faith and said, you know what, I'm going to do this. And it has made quite a difference in the country mm-hmm. um, so far because we, we went viral. Yeah. Um, the Associated Press picked us up. And once that happened, we just started getting calls from all over mm-hmm. um the country. So it's been incredible. Amazing. Been inc- it's been incredible.
1: Yeah. And and
3: to just consider that y'all have been at this for a year and it's it's a year. Mm-hmm. We literally, it's been a year. And the doors that have opened really the publicity and the exposure mm-hmm. that the brand people are grabbing onto this brand. Mm-hmm. It's a brand that they really haven't seen before that's owned by a a female and a person of color. And they're just like, this is great. We want to support. Mm -hmm. We want to support. Because at the end of the day, this is all about economic development and employment opportunities. When you can create these big companies like the Buds and the Coronas Mm -hmm. and the Heinekens, they've created economic wealth. They've created employment opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so my mission and my goal is to make sure that Everyone in the industry is accounted for, but mm-hmm. but taking it a step further, making sure that women of color and people of color have access to a brand that they can grow with yeah. and build with. Mm-hmm. I
1: know that especially being in this industry, being in this industry as a person of color and as a woman of color. That comes with significant hurdles. Um, I was wondering (laughs) if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges, about kind of like getting things off the ground and maybe even challenges you face in your day to day life.
3: Yeah. Well, you know what? This is the thing. First of all, when you're trying to get, you know, investors, we'll start from kind of like the beginning, because thank God for a supportive family and I mean, just support from a community and people that that know me. It's just like, if I'm going to get into this, I'm going to do this absolutely right. So once you have that that support, you know that, okay, you've got everyone that's there supporting you emotionally. So now it's just like, all right, now just put this all into play. But I will tell you, you know, when you're going out and looking for investors and looking for folks to fund a project, mm-hmm. it can be a little difficult because number one, it's like, all right, you're going into an industry that... They're looking at you like, maybe you you might not know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Why would I invest this money, you know, in yeah. you? So what I will tell young folks, especially of color, that are looking into owning their own business, just do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. My four years of research absolutely paid off. I had a business plan in place so that when I put it down on the table, the person, you know, whoever's like looking into investing in your company, be like, okay, she crossed all of her T's, dotted all of her I's. She's got a vision. Why would we not give her that Mm -hmm. chance? So that's number one really be connected with what you're doing and be very knowledgeable of that. Mm -hmm. And so, getting investors, or if you have private investment, I always tell people, you know, go fund me. Or there are so many resources Mm -hmm. out there on social media now where you can raise capital, significant, you know, capital to fund a project. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, once you get over that, hurdle of having someone invest in you, then it really is really breaking into an industry that's not used to having someone that looks like you Mm -hmm. in the industry. And I must say, I have had an amazing experience Mm -hmm. with the people here in Connecticut. Connecticut's Brewers Guild, amazing organization who have uh, embraced me, who have embraced the concept of diversifying the craft beer industry. And so... When you get folks like that who are behind you, Mm -hmm. you know, Connecticut Beer and you've got the Connecticut Craft Beer Girls and Body, like I shout out to them. I mean, these are just women who love craft beer who are diving into the industry. When you get folks like that behind you and embracing, you know, what you're doing for their industry, then that's incredible. I have run into people who look at me and say, Wow, she came in. She really shook up the industry. She's doing stuff that we never even thought about doing. And guess what? They think it makes them look bad or, and say, oh, okay, you know, what does this chick know about beer? Mm-hmm. And, she's, and she's not even, you know, she doesn't look like us. Well, sorry, I'm here. Mm-hmm. Here to stay, yeah. not going anywhere. And you know what? Just think outside of the box like I do. You can, I tell people all the time, you can do exactly what I do. Just don't, you know, look at me and, you know, get upset because I came in, and I really kind of when you shake right. up an industry, it causes awareness. Mm-hmm. and sometimes awareness makes people uncomfortable.
1: yeah.
3: And so when you have people that are uncomfortable uh, with this whole thing of like what's going on, like this you know, explosion of more people getting into the industry, you should welcome that, yeah, because then that means that there's more people that will be eyeing your brands and mm-hmm. your product. So for the most part, I have been completely embraced by all demographics. It's just been in- incredible. But I have had those um, that I've had to deal with and quickly cut ties and mm-hmm. relationships because you know that they're not out for your best interest. Yeah. And they don't want to see that little black girl that just got into the beer industry take off and succeed. Mm-hmm. And so what you do with those people, you just, you know what, you go and you prove them completely wrong and you just keep moving forward. So yeah. there, there's bumps, but I'm going to tell you, it's um, been delightful, the people that I've met um, in the industry. Amazing. Just to kind
1: of shift gears a little bit, Mm -hmm. I maybe not tie things together a little bit because I could honestly listen to you talk all day. But um, I know that recently you had a trip to the Bahamas. Yes, Um, I did. I was wondering if you could talk a little
3: bit about that. What was the purpose of that? Absolutely. So again, when the Associated Press picked up the story, it just really it, it went all over the country. And we received a call from A gentleman in the Bahamas who said, you know what, this brand, this product, your story would work wonderfully here. They're like, come on, you know, Rhythm, Bahamas, Carnival. Mm -hmm. They said it's one of those things that's just kind of like a perfect, perfect match. Mm -hmm. So that was back kind of in like April of May of last year and um, just last month. I got an invitation to fly down to the Bahamas to meet with the buyers. Mm-hmm. So when you're, you know, on an island, things are a little bit different because then you're going to start exporting. Mm-hmm. So you, but you want to make sure that your product is in the hands of people that are your perfect fit. So one meeting led to seven. And I will tell you that we are currently in negotiations for getting the product to the Bahamas. We're going to be exporting Mm -hmm. very soon. Amazing! We are so blessed and so honored to have that opportunity to really get the product and the brand out to the masses. But that's going to start a whole island, you know, find your rhythm in the islands Mm -hmm. campaign for us. So, you know, we start in in the Bahamas and before you know it, you know, hit all of the Mm -hmm. Caribbean. And so the trip was wonderful. It was, um, A great learning experience because, Mm -hmm. like I said, again, new, not new as an entrepreneur, but new to the industry. So I learned a lot on the trip, took away a lot from the trip because it was one of those things where, yes, this is a reality. This is a dream that's going to become a reality to actually get a product, you know, into the Atlantis Mm -hmm. or get it into the Bahamar, into the local community. Yeah. And people like that, again, they have not seen People that look like them on their island producing, Mm -hmm. manufacturing, nevertheless distributing a brand. And so people are very excited about that because Mm -hmm. I will be opening doors in the Bahamas for economic development and employment opportunities. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm most excited about. Yeah, that's amazing. I
1: love love this connection because, you know, you have— Rhythm Brewing Co. And that's such a purposeful name and it's such a purposeful title. Yes. And you bring that to places where rhythm is is so much in our hearts and in our souls and in our yes, memories. Um, yes, And you have this amazing connection. I'm wondering, thinking very contemporary, mm-hmm. there is this new, I wouldn't even call it new, but I guess this, this more emboldened push for more sustainable products and to have more organic, things that are labeled organic like out there in the market. Um, mm-hmm. And then on the flip side of that, there's this concern that as you're pushing towards sustainability it's going to increase or widen the gap between who can afford organic and sustainable produce and who can't i was mm-hmm. wondering if rhythm brewing is kind of grappling with this sort of issue of making things accessible and affordable and what kind of y'all's perspective is on Kay. this sustainable industry
3: yeah well you know what that that's a great question we always look at price point mm-hmm. we always look at recipe development, we're always looking, continuously looking, what's going to be the next flavor of rhythm? Mm -hmm. What's going to be the next brand? Um, I get people all the time asking me, are you going to make a non-alcoholic product? Mm -hmm. Are you going to make something, some people have wheat allergies, you know, Mm -hmm. are you going to make an organic beer? Are you going to have something that just, you know, gluten-free? So with that said, everyone that I brew with, Mm -hmm. we all, we come to the table to make sure that we're tapping into Different palettes, but in general, we just make sure that the product that we are producing now, mm-hmm. we perfect it. Yeah. So that when it hits the palettes of of folks, we know that while we're on, you know, to something. But mm-hmm. we really do. To your question, we absolutely make sure that our product is. And I will interject here. Mm-hmm. I do an unfiltered beer, mm, mm-hmm. which has better nutritional value in beer. People, beer like, people are like, there's just no nutritional value in beer. Yes, mm-hmm. actually, there can be if you produce it unfiltered mm-hmm. uh, beer like we do. And lagers tend to be lighter. Okay. So, you know, the calorie count drops. So I've kept all of that in consideration, mm-hmm. especially being a female. You know, we want to make sure that, you know, we don't gain weight, we don't gain weight in our tummies. Mm -hmm. And so the unfiltered product and brand really was something that I did more research on. But it's about the sustainability of keeping a product consistent out there with your competitors Mm -hmm. and making sure that people have access to it, Mm -hmm. but that, you know, a healthier kind of, I can't tell you all of the ingredients that Mm -hmm. are in the product, but we do have some fantastic uh, ingredients. Um, some local things we'll be incorporating mm-hmm. uh, into our beers soon. Yeah. So we we're looking at all of that because don't forget mm-hmm. there's always a shift in the industry if mm-hmm. people what people want, people don't want. So yeah.
1: amazing. I was wondering if you could just talk about your vision for the next like year, for the next like five years. What, yes. what does Rhythm Brewing Co look
3: like to you going forward oh, right so rhythm and it's, it's funny i think i shared this with you we just over the last uh, 48 hours i mm-hmm. uh, had a social media outlet that has probably close to a million followers mm-hmm. share our story and when that happened then 10 other outlets picked it up so we just looked this morning and we had over a million engagements wow that came in mm-hmm. interactions with rhythm. And so now people want to know in Virginia, in California, mm-hmm. in Atlanta. They want to know in Boston. They want to know in New York, in Jersey, mm-hmm. D.C., Philly, all over the country, where can we get the product? So our vision is to really get to that supply and demand, mm-hmm. brew more beer, but really get the message. People are connected with this brand because there's a story behind yeah. it just not something you go pick up on the shelf. When you f- see Rhythm, you'll know that there's a, someone that's a professional salsa dancer mm-hmm. who actually created this brand and this product, and she's paying homage to her grandmothers, yeah. and she's trying to create economic and social equality through a brewing company. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want. We want to be the beer brand that has literally changed the game. Mm-hmm. We've come in, we've tapped into different ethnicities different people's palates, and I'm talking for beer drinkers that are like these, you know, IPA and these craft beer people, Mm -hmm. we're talking to them too. We want them to join this movement with us. No. So what do I see? If there, if it's any indication of what I just saw in the last 48 hours Mm -hmm. with a million plus engagements with the company, then the next year, the next five years is to have this brand across the country. Mm -hmm. In the islands and mm-hmm. all the islands yeah people joke with me they say you know elisa Bowweiser's the king of beer they go you're the queen of beer so they've nicknamed me lady lager mm-hmm. and so we would like to have that presence in the beer world um and then in exchange you know give give back to the community so start doing some you know you buy a six pack then there's a certain portion donated so Mm -hmm. we want to be that company yeah but in five years i I, and i'm going to say three Mm -hmm. because i think three is a little bit more realistic i know that we will have made significant leeway in the industry and more importantly we will have opened up doors Mm -hmm. for so many others that are trying to get into this or that are already in it so we have big dreams high hopes and we want to just sell a ton of beer and we always tell people drink responsibly Mm If you, you purchase, we want people to just be uh, conscious, you know, of of that support, a brand, and the vision.
1: Yeah. So usually I and, like, the Yale Sustainable Food Program, Chewing the Fat, we like to close out by asking our guests um, what is, like, one myth that they would like to dispel in the food industry. So I'd like to, like, constrict that a little bit for you. Okay, so, right. um, So, like, what— What is one myth that you wish would kind of just, like, go away in, like, the brewing industry?
3: The one would be that only certain demographics can enjoy craft beer Mm -hmm. because that's just not true. There's there's a movement in, you know, this country. And I don't know if people know this, but women were the first brewers. Mm -hmm. Women were, so we're just basically just getting back and doing what we normally would do it's just comfortable. Yeah. It just seems very, it's very natural. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the myth would be just like, you know, we. W- there's a place for all in craft beer. It's just, you know, take that and let folks enter and, you know, just in, be inclusive and embrace. So, <laughs> Thank thanks.
1: Thank you for listening and remember to check out Ninth Square Market and Rhythm Brewing Company. I'm Ashia Ajani with the Yale Sustainable Food Program, encouraging you all to enjoy all the flavors New Haven has to offer.
0: From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. This episode was produced by Ashia Ajani, Thomas Hagen, and myself. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Luis Felice. Artwork by Logan Howard. Program support by Jacqueline Mono, Jeremy Oldfield, and Mark Bomford. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.